Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for Wednesday the 28th of June. This is the original Money Talk and it's sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, where we're one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. Also, please take a look at my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. In today's business and finance headlines... Premier Li Chang expressed optimism over the mainland economy yesterday in his opening address to China's annual meeting of the new champions, known as the World Economic Forum's Summer Davos. Mr. Lee said China was still on track to reach its annual growth target of around 5%, with growth in the second quarter expected to be faster than it was in the first. Premier Lee said the nation would roll out more practical and effective measures on expanding domestic demand and stimulating market dynamism. But Premier Lee warned that governments that attempt to politicise their economies will only fragment the world. He said the invisible barriers put up by some people in recent years are becoming widespread and pushing the world into fragmentation and even confrontation. He added we should oppose the politicisation of economic issues and work together to keep global industrial and supply chains stable, smooth and secure. He described the Western concept of de-risking as a false proposition. ECB President Christine Lagarde said Tuesday that inflation is still too high and it's too early for the central bank to declare victory over consumer price rises. Speaking at the Sintra Central Banking Conference in Portugal, she said we've made significant progress, but faced with a more persistent inflation process, we cannot waver and we cannot declare victory yet. Official data released on Tuesday showed that Hong Kong's trade recorded the largest decline in four months. Exports slipped 15.6% year-on-year and were down for a 13th consecutive month. Imports shrunk at a much faster rate of 16.7%. That's the 11th straight monthly contraction. On today's programme, I'm joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and Alex Froome McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for TheStreet.com. And with a view from South Korea, it's Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities in Seoul. On Wall Street Tuesday, technology shares reversed Monday's sharp falls as investors readied for the end of the first half of 2023. The S&P 500 advanced 1.2% to finish at 4,378. The Dow rose on Tuesday for the first time in seven days, climbing 212 points, or 0.6%, to end at 33,927. The Nasdaq Composite surged 1.7% to settle at 13,556. U.S. Treasury yields rose on Tuesday, ahead of the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index for May, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, due on Friday. The 10-year Treasury yield was trading at 3.75% after rising by five basis points. The Japanese yen slipped below 144 against the dollar for the first time since November. The yen is down 10% since the start of the year, and the yen is approaching levels at which the Bank of Japan intervened last year to support the currency. The offshore yuan rebounded after China set its daily reference rates for the managed currency at a stronger-than-expected level for a second day. The offshore yuan rose a third of a percent to 7.2240 renminbi per dollar, while onshore yuan was at renminbi 7.2193. 
On Monday, the yuan fell to a seven-month low of 7.2364 in Shanghai. The renminbi is more than 5% lower against the dollar this quarter, and that's put the currency on track for one of the worst quarterly falls on record since the country ended a soft peg to the US dollar in 2005. Chinese stocks rallied Tuesday after Premier Li Chang gave a speech at the summer Davos indicating that the authorities intended to support growth in the world's second largest economy. The Hang Seng Index, which was down for five straight days, losing 6.2% over the period, recovered 354 points, or 1.9%, to end the day at 19,148. Hang Seng futures are unchanged this morning, signalling a flat open for Hong Kong's benchmark index. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index climbed 1.2% to 3,189. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Wednesday morning guests. We have with us Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning, Mark. Uh, good morning, Peter and Alex. And also with us, Alex Fru McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. Morning to you, Alex. Morning, Peter. Um, let's start with uh, Premier Li Chang's uh, speech, in uh, opening speech at the new champ- meeting of the new champions. It's known as the World Economics Forum's Summer Davos, um, the first in-person meeting in three years. Premier Li Chang gave a keynote speech. First of all, he spoke about the economy. And he said China was on track to reach its annual growth target of around 5%. And he said growth in the second quarter is expected to be faster than it was in the first. Uh, China's economy, as a reminder, grew by 4.5% in the first quarter. Premier Li said the nation would roll out more practical and effective measures on expanding domestic demand and stimulating market dynamism. And he said China will also continue to be committed to a more open economy. And Mark, what do you make about that? Because economists may be a little bit surprised because their their feeling is, certainly from the anecdotal data and for the for, from the forward-looking data, is that growth is slipping in the second quarter, not improving. It, it seems to be. Um, of course, we're all hoping that he's right, and the and the Hang Seng Index reflected that, but maybe has has come down to earth. It sounds like like today, and the reason is, of course, is be one of the reasons is is because. China is absolutely vital to the Hong Kong's economy prospects as well. And we've seen issues there with exports and other areas. Those issues are still there in China. Certainly, the, the stimulation measures may help in certain areas. It may not be enough. Still problems in property, still problems with local debt, still problems with consumption in terms of, of confidence of, of consumers and wanting to spend. Doesn't mean it's still going to be a pretty good economy, I think compared to much of the rest of the world. But at this point, it looks still below expectations. Again, I hope the the Premier is correct. Alex, were you surprised at all by what he said? I'm not surprised that he's attempting to talk things up. Um, uh, I guess the point is that both compared to, you know, its historical norms and to other emerging markets in Asia, particularly India, China's growth still looks uh, lackluster and... I think, you know, as a, as market pundits like to say, the, the risks are to the downside. So, you know, Nomura, S&P, they've been cutting their forecast for China growth for this year and sometimes next. Um, and it certainly looks to be well off the pace that, you know, we're seeing in India where 
uh, the economy is growing at about 6.9%. So uh, let's not uh, forget, too, that uh, this year's numbers in China are uh, buffed because last year was so poor uh, because they, they were still attempting to wipe out COVID. So the comparisons look pretty good in 2023 um, because last year was very poor. But services is what's really sort of keeping uh, the ball rolling at the moment in China and manufacturing looks quite uh, quite dismal. Um, and we saw that services uh, uh, spending, tourism spending over the Dragon Boat Festival weekend, for instance, was uh, generally disappointing. Car sales seem to be down, home sales are, are not good. So it looks like the Chinese consumer isn't uh, expressing a lot of optimism, although they're sort of they're, they're accounting for the growth that we're seeing in these numbers. And we're going to find out on Friday because we'll get PMI numbers, which will tell us a bit more about how the manufacturing and services sector are performing. And Mark, he, uh, Premier Lee was talking about taking measures to support the economy. This is like waiting for Godot, isn't it? We've, we've been waiting for these <laughs> stimulus measures um, for quite a while now, and they just don't seem to be coming. Well, well, they've started, they've started it to some extent as well in terms of, of, of rates, of lowering rates and, and sending signals of support in areas like property and so on. And, you know, it's, it's something that that's probably needed, but again, it's, it's, uh, it's me, it doesn't look like it's going to be enough. Our forecast it remains, and we may be wrong, is that that growth for the entire 2023 is going to be below 5% and maybe around the 4.6% level. You know, that that's a little lower than most forecasts, but it, it indicates that there are still issues, all the ones that Alex outlined. Do you think, Alex, the, the, the market rally is not going to last is, is unless we do see more than just talk? I think investors, economists want to see, well, OK, what are the concrete actions that Beijing is going to take to try and support this um, economy? Do you think uh, there's any chance that we're going to see some concrete a- actions and what sort of things they could do? Well, as Mark just said, we have seen, you know, a, a sort of 10 basis point cut in, uh, in various rates, short term, mid term, which is kind of as small as it could be, uh, really, in terms of a change. So they're sort of uh, stuck because they want to stimulate the economy. And then they're very wary of uh, inflating asset bubbles again, which is what's happened in the past when they've introduced stimulus. So they're sort of really trying to target that stimulus as carefully as they can. Uh, so I expect we would see various cities maybe, you know, allow people to buy more homes and adjust the uh, mortgage down payment requirements, especially for first-time buyers. Uh, those are sort of changes that tend to be quite easy to make and perhaps don't lead to a huge uh, boom in the property price, which is what, what, what they want to avoid and what happened last time they introduced uh, large-scale stimulus. So, um, yeah, they're, they're sort of stuck. And I thought it was very interesting that the uh, the Chinese Communist Party gathered uh, recently, um, you know, executives and entrepreneurs and kind of asked them, what can we do to, to get the economy back on track? Because it's been a lot of moves by the CCP that have effectively shaken confidence by making sudden changes overnight that affected industries drastically. Um, targeting big tech and the most successful companies in China. That's really shaken uh, a lot of uh, executives and business owners' confidence. 
And so that's going to be very hard to restore. And I think consumer confidence is also not strong. Those are both difficult things to reestablish. Okay. I think it's possible that that more uh, more important measures might come out of Portugal than uh, than Tianjin this week. Where the central bankers and European central bankers are meeting. Yeah, yeah, we'll get, we'll get on to that in a moment. Let me, yeah, let me ask you about another aspect of what uh, Premier Lee talked about, and that was that he really went on the offensive against the Western concept of what they call de-risking. He said, as you know, some in the West are hyping up the so-called phraseologies of reducing dependencies and de-risking. He said these two concepts are false propositions. As economic globalization has already made the world economy an integral whole, where everyone's interests are closely entwined, countries are interdependent, interconnected with each other on their economies. And he said we can enable each other's successes. But he warned that governments that attempt to politicize their economies will only fragment the world. The invisible barriers put up by some people in recent years are becoming widespread and pushing the world into fragmentation and even confrontation, he said. And he said we should oppose the politicization of economic issues and work together to keep global industrial and supply chains stable, smooth and secure. And he said that business decisions shouldn't be subjected to geopolitical confrontations. Now, Mark, this is quite a robust attack, isn't it, on this whole idea that's come up recently of, of what the West likes to call. I think Ursula von der Leyen invented the term uh, de-risking. Yeah, well... And you've heard the distinction made between de-risking and decoupling by Secretary of State Blinken and others. I'm not sure there's a difference. It's semantic difference, but not much else. But it's going on. Mm. It's going on and not just by governments, but by companies. And what they're trying to do, obviously, is diversify to somehow protect themselves in terms of supply chains and others. Part of it has to do with cost. Part of it has to do with geopolitics. And there are other issues as well. It's going on, not always too successfully. And, it, you know, strangely, it's also going on now in South Asia with garment makers where demand has come down for for garments, especially in the United States and to some extent in Europe. And trying that was the de-risking place uh, for, you know, to as an alternative to China. And now they have to think again. So it's evolving. It's partly political, but it's partly not political. And to say that economics is being politicized I don't think that's new. Mm. I think that's been going on for a couple of thousand years at least. Alex, what was interesting about yeah. this was they seem to have a, a bit of a new strategy here. They seem to be trying to drive a wedge between corporations and their governments. They're basically saying this should be left to companies to decide. They should decide what is meant by de-risking and how to manage their risks and governments should really step out of the way, which I suspect will be music to some companies' ears, actually. That's exactly what they are doing. I mean, companies in Germany are sort of almost defying the governments by investing in, in China in certain sectors that uh, Germany's worried about. What, what, what's the significance of this new strategy? Yes, I think appealing to companies is much easier for, for a government like China and likely to be much more successful and uh, yeah, principally, I mean, they, they have leverage over companies. If you've got a factory in China, as Micron has discovered, and there are geopolitical tensions, all of a sudden Micron's under investigation. We found some flaws here and there, you know, so they can target you if you've got a production facility in China. Um, uh, but we have seen, you know, Tesla, uh, Mark Mobius recently sort of um, saying that they like 
India and want to enter India while still being bullish on China. So I think that's the difference between uh, de-risking and decoupling. I think there is a difference. Um, it means, you know, we'll stay invested in or manufacturing in China, but we're going to diversify. And uh, normally India seems to be the first place that, that people look, multinationals look and investors look. Uh, I've written a couple of stories recently about, you know, is China the new India? And there's a lot of interest. I get a lot of emails from readers in the U.S. Uh, asking about India. You know, uh, friend shoring is a real thing. I think companies are looking to expand production in uh, allies of the United States. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a growing number of investment funds that um, exclude China or exclude the, the sanctions bound companies, uh, which makes things problematic for investors into China. So um, I think it, it makes sense for China to appeal to companies, and they're more likely to find success there. They, they don't have leverage over the US government, really. Um, and uh, uh, it is true that, you know, German companies uh, and so on are still very keen to expand in China. But um, I think, as, as Mark was saying, you know, the pandemic, uh, revealed the issues behind having too much uh, production in one place and having all your eggs in one basket. So, um, you know, just if there's a natural disaster, for instance, that uh, can disrupt your production lines, it helps to have uh, production in, in the second, the third, and the fourth location as well. And so I think companies will still keep de-risking in that way. I, I agree. And, and India, you know, Micron's a good example of India, being being attractive to other companies as well in terms of decoupling it doesn't mean completely going away from china most of our members in china are committed to china one way or another but again are are trying to put their eggs in other baskets also part of it's a reaction to to customers in china who are tending to try to de-risk themselves and uh, you know whether for political or for for economic business reasons, and um, and try to uh, try to depend more on local suppliers than than international ones, thinking that might be reliable in the in the longer term. And then, you know, those companies that are international companies, who who were their uh, their suppliers, have to look for other customers. What I find ironic about uh, Premier Li's comments is that China's the world leader in politicising companies. I mean, it would never stand for the idea that its own companies should somehow operate independently of the government and shouldn't be serving overall government objectives. So, um, but nevertheless, it, it, this seems to be um, China sort of trying to redefine de-risking towards its more towards its own ends. Yeah, and state-owned enterprises, which you know, not only in China but elsewhere. Are one of the issues for the WTO and 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 for others in trying to uh, trying to look for new ways to regulate or 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 reestablish some form of an international order, you know, with with mixed successes being kind. So we, we saw with uh, when when Carrie Lam was in charge, you know, she kept saying, "Don't politicize things," which basically just meant "Don't disagree with me." It didn't mean "Don't make it political." Um, and China, you know, has just banned three uh, financial writers, for instance, um, from Weibo because they've been writing, you know, that the stock market's not doing well. Um, so, and uh, they expressly said that they've been attacking and undermining policy. So they've politicized it right there. And I agree. I mean, they 
they 100% politicize almost everything. So just saying don't politicize things means, you know, please don't target us and disagree with us. This is a worrying trend, isn't it? If it is a trend of, of banning sort of economists, of banning financial uh, pundits, if um, they say negative things about the economy, or I think in this particular case about the youth unemployment rate, um, presumably this is partly a reaction to the fact that the Chinese market has performed so badly this year. Yeah, well, and it's the real worry that people have had about, uh, you know, having analysts based in Hong Kong, for instance, with the national security law in place. Can you be arrested for saying that the Chinese economy is not being managed very well or the stock market's doing poorly? You know, is that sedition? Uh, perhaps, you know. <laughs> Mark? This, this isn't new, but it's but the trend, trend is worrying. I remember about 15, at least 15 years ago, it could have been longer than that, uh, an economic analyst in, in Singapore revealed uh, some data, I think it might have been GDP data, a bit early, and it was was not favorable and was um, was taken to task by the government and the government wanted to uh, wanted to uh, wanted to deport him for for releasing that because he was not a was not a not a was not a native Singaporean you know this is the sort of thing that happens but it just seems to be increasing not just in China but elsewhere and that's that's a worrying trend where do you think this is all heading as we move into the second half of the year, this idea of de-risking and um, securing supply chains? We've, we've got talk of maybe Janet Yellen visiting Beijing at the beginning of July, but also talk at the same time that, that Joe Biden's pushing forward with an executive order that could, could cut off certain U.S. investments in China, particularly in chip making, artificial intelligence and so on. So if you look at that, it doesn't seem that things are going to improve, does it? in the second half of the year they're mixed signals right and that's that's a really good example of that and you know it's not just tech companies that are worried about that u.s kept tech companies and others and some even based in hong kong there are other industries that you would think are are less sensitive to these kind of trends because don't know how far it's going to get and how that's going to affect u.s relations especially with hong kong and the hong kong policy act and all that that sort of thing but on the other side is janet yellen who's been the most vocal in suggesting that the U.S. restrictions on China, especially in tariffs and so on, are often counterproductive and, and has raised, raised other issues, which, which I think many people would sympathize with, especially in business. And you know, if she does get to China in July, I guess that's a positive sign. And it would maybe be followed by others, both uh, U.S. officials going to China and Chinese officials maybe going to the U.S. as well. That's not going to solve everything, but at least it's at least it it may ease the situation for a while until the U.S. political system kicks in full full throttle, which maybe is already happening, but especially will will ramp up uh, as as the autumn approaches. Alex, if we look forward to the second half of the year of the, these geopolitical tensions, do we have reason to be op optimistic that maybe at least the two sides can learn how to live with each other? Well, it's been interesting that the U.S. has been, uh, you know, restricting, um, you know, chip exports, things like that to, to China, while, um, you know, uh, requesting all sorts of ministerial meetings and sending uh, Anthony Blinken and, and possibly Janet Yellen to, uh, to, to China. So they've been reaching out, you know, uh, on the bureaucratic level and political level 
to China to try to reestablish dialogue. But I think you know the sentiment in the United States uh, against China is quite negative. I, I was just reading that it's very similar to how Russia was viewed after World War II, where immediately after World War II, Russia had been a U.S. ally, so it was viewed quite positively. And then that changed quite quickly uh, and became a very negative view going into the Cold War. And China is now sort of viewed in a similar light in, in the U.S. And then that uh, feeds into the political system and politicians, you know, see that they can make, uh, get votes by attacking China or have that part of their platform. So, um, you know, we, we'll be going into an election cycle in the U.S. So I wouldn't see them ratcheting the rhetoric down any. I think that'll continue while at the same time there are these efforts to um, politically at least, you know, make some connections, reestablish links, which China often actually cut off. You know, they cut off uh, the means of the two militaries uh, discussing uh, situations so that they could avoid, you know, getting into clashes and so on. Um, I think the U.S. would like to reestablish a lot of ministerial connections. Let me ask um, you... But uh, going into the second half of the year, I mean... I'm sure that this this political tension is going to continue, and, and I think those you know de-risking trends will will accelerate. They've been going on you know since before the pandemic, but then the pandemic really kind of pushed it to the fore. One of the issues in the U.S. is the China issue is not often decisive in elections, but you can't step off the central narrative, which which uh, Alex just outlined. Of, of worrying about China and being a, a threat to the U.S. And if you do, then you're in trouble politically for politicians of, of either party. So that's the issue. And as I said, I'm afraid it's going to ramp up probably as we approach the end of the year rather than uh, calm down. I hope I'm wrong, but I think I'm not. Before we finish, I just want to get a, a quick comment from you both on um, Hong Kong trade, because trade has fallen by the most in four months, according to official data released yesterday. Exports slipped 15.6% year on year. That's the 13th consecutive month of declines. And for the first five months of the year, the total value of shipments declined by 16.3% compared to the same period a year ago. Imports shrank even faster. They were down 16.7%. That's the 11th straight monthly contraction. And it means the trade deficit increased in May uh, to uh, to 26 point. Uh, sorry, the trade deficit decreased in May to 26.4 billion dollars. Commerce and Economic Development Se- uh, Secretary Algernon Yao said, "We hope to find a way out through cooperation with different trade blocks and overseas trade delegations for business opportunities." But that's easier said than done, Mark. I suspect, isn't it? Yeah, we're trying to join uh, Recep, for example. Uh, the Hong Kong government and whether that would make a big difference since that organization is just getting started. I don't know, but I'm not sure even where that is. Yeah, exports obviously is a major problem. Plus the other issues, as I mentioned earlier, obviously Hong Kong's pretty dependent on the Chinese economy. And if the Chinese economy doesn't doesn't uh, perk up a little bit more, obviously it'll have an impact on Hong Kong. Again, Hong Kong will do better almost certainly than it did last year. But again, maybe not reaching the expectations that that many had hoped for. Alex, your thoughts? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, a lot of those trade numbers for, for Hong Kong imports and exports are going into and out of China, um, whether it's uh, sending components into China to be assembled into parts and then, then the finished product comes out through Hong Kong and is shipped elsewhere. 
Um, so it's, you know, intricately tied with the Chinese economies. Okay. Well, thank you both for your thoughts this morning. Have a great day. That's Alex Foo McMillan, who is a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. And you also heard Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. I'm joined now by Peter Kim, who is Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities in Seoul. Good morning to you, Peter. Good morning. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts about the first half of the year in markets and, and in the economies as we move into the second half of the year uh, next week. I think there's been three big themes, hasn't there? The first one has been, of course, inflation. Central banks raising interest rates a lot more um, than what people anticipated at the beginning of the year. And it looks like if you listen to Christine Lagarde yesterday speaking at the ECB banking conference uh, in Portugal, they are not done and the Fed is not done either. Do you think investors are prepared for this in the second half of the year? Um, it seems that way. Uh, if uh, judge, Judging by the, the uh, very strong rally we've seen from U.S. equities, it would seem that uh, there is a return of uh, animal spirits of uh, a certain scale. Uh, and despite the data warning of a uh, impending recession, uh, the, uh, the investor appetite has been very strong. Um, I think um, from beginning of this year to now, perhaps the biggest difference or change uh, has been rather than whether there is a recession coming or not, uh, I think the more focused and relevant question would be what type of recession. And I think the rally in equity market seems to signal that from what we thought at the beginning of the year to be a, a deep and possibly very destructive recession. Now uh, we're looking at a shallow and perhaps short one uh, that we can actually manage through. And I think uh, uh, that is being reflected in the uh, rally in U.S. equities, despite you know the worrying signals elsewhere outside of the U.S., to be frank. Do you think um, central banks have got on top of inflation? And I suppose it depends to a certain extent where you look, doesn't it? Because maybe in emerging markets, and particularly here in Asia, central banks do seem to be on top of it. They're, they're pausing now the interest rate rises, but it doesn't seem to be the case in the developed markets, certainly not in Europe and the UK, not in the US and, and not in Japan either, either. If you look at the recent yeah. inflation data there, it's at a 40-year high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, it's once again uh, we need to look at it from let's say September of last year. Uh, um, you know, like hyperinflation, energy prices going to the moon. I mean, it seemed like there was a you know uh, uh, implosion of a massive kind. And now um, uh, inflation is still there, and I think uh, the best way uh, to describe it is sticky. Uh, it's not going away, but it's certainly not at that worrying level that we saw back in September. Uh, so I think once again, um, from September to now, inflation is under control, but under control does not mean it's gone. Uh, so I do think that there is a lingering, uh, uh, component of inflation that probably a, a good prolonged recession can only, uh, resolve. Do you think maybe, uh, as maybe the, the chief economist at the IMF was suggesting earlier this week, we've got to get used now to a period of higher inflation? That maybe is a risk that we're going to have to take because it's going to be extremely difficult without very painful interest rates to get inflation back to the central bank's targets. 
Yeah, well, I think, again, uh, you know, we need to be a little more nuanced. Um, you know, uh, uh, sustained level of high interest rates, uh, what would that be? 3 4%. Uh, historically, if you look at over the past uh, 30 years, it's not um, painful. Uh, uh, inflation of 2 3% is always something that is considered healthy. So I think, uh, you know, um, maybe real interest rate with uh, inflation adjusted, if one or two percent doesn't seem uh, that drastic, and I think uh, you know uh, we can live with that type of an environment uh, for a couple of years, and I think um, uh, we are, uh, and there's certainly equity market is adjusting to that reality. Um, that is not, we don't have to have some sort of a catastrophe uh, with uh, inflation running at two three percent and interest rate. Uh, are running at three four that's real interest rate one or two i mean um you know i think that's manageable and certainly from a corporate uh, debt management standpoint uh, uh that's certainly uh uh manageable over a longer period mm. but you have places where like the uk for example where you've got inflation much higher than that at 8.7 percent the headline inflation that's rate right. and no sign of it coming down that's right so uh, I think I call it the decoupling from the U.S. from rest of the world, certainly against China. Uh, but uh, when I was in Europe a couple of weeks ago, I mean, um, the investors there were basically uh, stating that recession is here for Europe uh, and they're, uh, you know, sorting it through. So um, I think uh, U.S., uh, um, is probably standing the strongest with its onshoring efforts, its um, inflation, you know, the oil prices working in its favor, uh, shale gas uh, certainly playing a part in that. So um, to be honest, I think there is a very understandable justification for U.S. equities are performing versus the rest of the world. And certainly against EM, uh, it's definitely... Uh, uh, the uh, decoupling is uh, certainly looking a lot more profound. Do, do you think that uh, outperformance of U.S. equities, which has been driven largely by technology stocks, and in particular those related to artificial intelligence, uh, and then when you compare the China markets, which are the global underperformers um, this year, yeah. do you see any sign of things reverting? Well, it's a technical speaking it's certainly due for correction and we're seeing a very small part of it now but um, I think uh, what's I think it's wrong to describe what's happening with uh, uh, the AI themes in the US to be uh, one-off isolated uh, uh, rally I think it's a, um, a function of a broader uh, uh, strengthening of the uh, macro structure of the US uh, and that uh, compared to the earlier this year, U.S. economy um, is managing it pretty well. I do think that there is going to be some uh, weakening of the uh, U.S. economy um, in a few months. Um, with some of the data that I'm watching does seem to signal uh, further weakening, which I think will probably prompt concerns of a recession. Um, I think, uh, uh, once again, um, uh, what type of a recession is going to be uh, the focal point rather than whether uh, a recession is coming or not. Mm. Um, going, looking at a little bit into China, I do think that the, uh, there's some worrying concerns that the policymakers from mainland has not really gotten behind the reopening uh, 
and stimulated to create a, a, a much bigger momentum. Um, certainly, the lack of consumption returning from uh, zero lockdown uh, uh, relaxation uh, uh, signal an economy that really uh, is on a weaker foundation that the policymakers expected. And I do uh, think that part of it is the um, the political environment, which is chilly towards that, uh, you know, the exuberant consumers that used to just go out and spend. And also, I think, uh, um, the geopolitical risk uh, hitting corporate investment sentiment as well. And where does South Korea um, fit in? Mm. The market's there. Um, they've been quite resilient, haven't they? And of course, you have got some um, some artificial intelligence champions there as well. So does this make, um, you know, South Korea um, an attractive proposition? Yeah, I think uh, I wouldn't call them champions yet. <laughs> it's uh, uh, short history and, you know, there are a lot of wannabe champions out there and Korea is uh, very quick to make adjustments. Uh, Korea is always, uh, South Korean companies are, are always underestimated for its ability to adjust, pivot uh, based on changing trends. Um, and uh, you look at the history of Korean companies, um, they are very, very uh, good at it. And I think um, in an environment where you have uh, changing macro environment as well as geopolitical and technological, um, you know, Korea's usually uh, come up with some beneficiaries. So that's, that definitely I, I do believe in. Uh, from a broader macro standpoint, uh, Korean economy is holding pretty well. Um, uh, its central bank, the BOK, was one of the first ones to hike about six months before the FOMC. So it has that advantage. And secondly, um, unlike the U.S., uh, we don't have labor shortage uh, at the mid-end or the low-end. Um, so uh, the lack of uh, perhaps a manageable uh, wage inflation is certainly in its favor. Um, and the fact that the commodity prices and oil prices is coming down uh, as a net importer of all those resources, uh, South Korea is a, a reasonable beneficiary, unlike the rest of the EM. Yeah. Mm, okay, interesting. Now, the third theme, of course, from the first half of the year is the, is the geopolitical one, what the West calls de-risking uh, from China. It, it's changed its phraseology from decoupling to de-risking. It was interesting yesterday at the summer Davos that Premier Li Chang made a robust uh, rebuttal um, of that. He was saying de-risking was a false uh, proposition and it was just going to fragment and, and divide the world. But um, no sign of that en- ending, is there? No, I think um, it seems like both U.S. and China are hunkering down for a, a long period of this standoff. Uh, and uh, every time you have a little bit of, a, um, you know, a green shoots of uh, a reconciliation, you know, uh, from um, uh, another place, uh, escalation starts. So um, I don't think uh, uh, it, will anytime, it will end anytime soon. Uh, South Korea is an interesting co- uh, country because... It's always um, uh, been tasked with managing the two sides um, um, uh, pretty well in the history, in its history. Um, increasingly dependent on China, but politically always aligned with the U.S. Um, and I think uh, how South Korea manages this situation might be a useful blueprint for other countries to be. Uh, to be frank. But there is one country that I just noticed that is managing it even better, and that seems to be India. India, yes. And that's something <laughs> that I find very interesting. I mean, they seem to be doing it much better than anyone else, you know. Um, it's managing its uh, political neutrality, but 
having the benefits of uh, economic um, uh, 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 proceeds um, equally as well. So, you know, it seems to be um, maybe it's the new champion of uh, um, political and economic neutrality. Narendra Modi is walking the tightrope very well, isn't he, between the Western well. and China? Very impressive. <laughs> Peter, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed for speaking with me this morning. Thank you. That was Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities in Seoul. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's show, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Louisa Fock, China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Please join me again tomorrow. Money Talk 